Hello out there, I'm Will. And I'm Whitney. And you're listening to Yelling About Superheroes. This is episode 14, The Incredibles Part 1. We had planned to do a single episode on both Incredibles films, but we ended up talking so much about the first movie alone that we had to split things up. So here, then, is our nerd out about my personal favorite superhero movie of all time. Hey guys, so guess what movie we just saw? We saw The Incredibles 2 and it was so good. So this week we're going to just talk about The Incredibles and how like amazing it is and stuff like that. So uh, yep. where, do you, where do we want to start? I mean, we could start with the basic premises of the movie. Yeah. Basically, it's like Will described it the other day as like family-friendly Watchmen. As well as the best Fantastic Four movie that's ever been made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's basically it. Like, if you haven't watched The Incredibles, well, I mean, there will be spoilers herein. So and also, this... watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's... I was going to say, turn this off. Watch that movie right now. Both and then them. come back to this. Yeah, both of them. Both of them. Because you're lucky enough to be able to do that now. I had to wait 14 years for this sequel. And it did not disappoint. But, anyway... Yeah, so yes, the movie ahead. kind of starts with you get yeah, which is it's interesting because it starts out with almost archival footage, and they call it as such when the same footage comes up again in The Incredibles too. It's interesting in that it's superheroes talking directly to the camera. It's not like the typical action movie start or anything like that. It looks it's kind very, of like an interview or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, sure they're doing a big old interview, so they're gonna be, I guess maybe sticking to some party lines or whatnot, maybe not being completely unfiltered, but they're remarkably honest, I think, for the context that they're saying these things in. Like, Mr. Incredible being very frank about, like, we just cleaned up this mess, can we keep it clean for, for 10 minutes? Yeah, they kind of establish Frozone and Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl mm-hmm. as established superheroes, and yeah, we have this bit of them doing... What must be interview sections of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for like, I doubt 60 Minutes existed back then, but something like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And what we get from the overall prologue sort of thing is that uh, superheroes have been outlawed. This happens basically very shortly after the overall intro prologue. Mm-hmm. So like the interviews and then it launches right into the first part of the action, which is set in like the 1950s, roughly. Yeah, yeah. We get this 1950s era prologue, which introduces, again, the main adult characters of the movie, uh, back when they were active superheroes, and you see Mr. Incredible going on some adventures, and having some mishaps, and eventually getting married to Elastigirl. Yeah, which, can I actually talk about that for a second? Because I was just reading this academic article about it. Haha, of course I was. Um, the only one I've been able to find thus far on The Incredibles, incidentally, and this article by Dietmar Meinl, Meinl, I think is his name, yeah, pointed out that it's kind of a misdirect in a way, like, it doesn't, the movie doesn't start out with, you know, Mr. Incredible, the perfect white male superhero facing off against some arch nemesis or whatever, like, they kind of hint at that with Bon Voyage, but the focus is really on the relationship between Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl, it's... Very much a subversion of, like, superhero trope expectations in that sense. And, like, the, the focus on family, which was also hinted at in the um, sort of archival footage prologue, too, um, with Mr. Incredible saying outright he'd like to settle down, and Frodo's having the bit about how super ladies are always trying to tell you their secret identity, think it'll strengthen the relationship or something. Like, that, that really... Funny grounds this movie in a sense like it is gonna focus on not just one incredible but incredibles multiple like the 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 interpersonal relationships are the beating heart of this film yeah and that's established very early on it is what's really a subversion of a lot of like tropey expectations or whatnot yeah so i guess skipping the usual like play-by-play sort of thing The Incredibles is a movie about superheroes, but it's also, I feel like, even more so a movie about the family. Oh, 100%. The Park family. And I think that might be stating the obvious. But it's not like the movie isn't about the superhero stuff either, because it totally is. Like, 
Yeah. You could not make this movie about a family that wasn't superheroes and still have it make any sense for pretty obvious reasons. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, it's got the political thing going on where superheroes have been outlawed. Yeah, and interestingly, I I would love to... I don't think we have time for it today, but I would really love to do a comparison among superhero movies that try to reckon with the massive amounts of damage that super antics can cause. Specifically, I'd love to compare Incredibles with, like, Captain America Civil War. Hmm. And, like, talk about, like, the rationales for banning things and stuff like that. Okay, something that's a, almost like a throwaway line in the, interestingly enough, the newsreel summary of superheroes getting banned that was a really interesting way to handle that is the fact that the government is paying for all the damage that superheroes did. So, which raises the question of, like, who exactly are these heroes working for normally? Are they under the purview of some government agency even before they're banned and Rick Dicker has to relocate them left, right, and center? Like, the, the movie never really addresses that. And indeed, in The Incredibles too, government seems to have very much turned against them. We see the, like, even the minor agents of the bureaucracy, like, really antagonizing the superheroes. Even just so, like, how did that officers. work? How did that happen? I, It's never really explained, and that's something I'm incredibly curious about, if you'll pardon the horrible pun that I didn't realize I was making until I said it. But I think the second movie actually sort of talks about this and, like, why public opinion turned against them. Yeah, I don't know if it, it doesn't was give quite any... to my satisfaction. I'm still chewing on that, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, it doesn't give any logistical details, but it kind of gets the general point across of the association of the public consciousness with superheroes and massive destruction. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, so, flash forward 15 years and things have become wonderfully heteronormative. As in Bob and Helen have three kids and live in a nice suburban house. Like their house is actually really cool. Like the design of it is really cool. I would live in that house. It's very 70s. Yeah. Which is funny. The last time I saw The Incredibles before I rewatched it for this was a long time ago. And at that point, I really did not pick up on the things of it being set around the 70s. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like think about when it would have been set consciously at all. But I didn't even know, I didn't even know that it had been given that past uh, sort of aesthetic until yeah. yeah, I think you mentioned it at some point. Yeah, I was definitely And that was when I put the pieces to together. But <laughs> yeah, their house does look delightfully 70s. And there's Yeah, just like Almost timelessly delightful in general. Like, I, like yeah. I'm not kidding. I yeah. would live in that house. Pixar has great set design. And, oh I mean, my Pixar God, has so great dope. everything, but they really made the uh, visuals of it, like, very fun and stylized. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The architecture and the furniture and all that. Oh, God, yeah. The, ar- the architecture everywhere. The Incredibles house, Edna Mode's place, Edna Mode's big old house on the big old hill is just so great. Oh, that's amazing. She's amazing. She's perfect. So I guess we can talk like the plot of the first movie and like some of the things that are cool about it or subversive. Yeah. Or just generally all the thoughts that we have on it. Yeah. Because I know we do. Oh, totally. Yeah. Honestly, this was one of the most formative movies for me. It basically, I would say the X-Men movies of the early 2000s were when I first sort of got interested in superheroes, but The Incredibles, oh man, this movie cemented it for me. Like, this movie is, in a a sense, basically the reason I'm doing this podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's the best. I love it. It has such a special place in my heart. So as you mentioned, with everything being delightfully heteronormative, and it really sets up that they have to be a normal family, it seems that for one reason or another, while they cannot legally use their powers for like superhero purposes they also have to hide their powers entirely yeah it's never really made explicitly clear why that is i suppose it's the usual things of like oh super villains will come after you i mean maybe but it's also sort of no i think it's the idea of oh just people using superpowers in general causes more damage than it's worth so that could be the case. Yeah, I think that's more of what's going on. I honestly, especially considering what happens in the very beginning of Incredibles 2, I honestly don't think the bureaucracy is that concerned about supervillains, which is really weird to me. 
But yeah, I mean, I there's really no explanation of where the supervillains go or what happens to them after superheroes are outlawed. That's but true. it's also never really indicated just how bad supervillains are. Like outside of the main antagonists of the two movies, who are kind of unusual in themselves, the other supervillains we see are Bomb Voyage and the Underminer. Yeah, and, and you know, kind Bomb of Voyage thing. is kind of a clown. He has a lot of bombs. Yeah, which, like a you French know, French mime almost in his face painting. But I just realized something. None of the super villains, so to speak, have any powers. Like, Bon Voyage doesn't appear to have any superpowers other than, you know, I guess, hella makeup skills. I guess that's true. Yeah, they all yeah, just. Yeah, so use it's really just. Yeah, exactly. The Underminer uses his giant friggin' drill or whatever. And then obviously, Syndrome just invented all his own stuff. There are no super villains with powers in the way that there are superheroes with superpowers, which is so interesting. I can't believe I just put that together. It's literally just like Mr. Incredible fighting comparatively petty crime, like that tour bus robbery or whatnot, or getting cats down from trees. So I know it clicked for me on this viewing that saving that cat from that really tall tree would have been far easier for Elastigirl. Yeah. I guess the second movie kind of touches on the differences, I guess, between those, like, power sets and how they can be used. Oh, yeah, totally. The second movie was amazing in terms of really showcasing the range of Elastigirl's, the applications for her powers. Yeah. Like, the creativity she she can have in She is so good in that movie. Oh, my God. But we can get to that later. Yeah. I mean, the first movie sets up the dynamic of, you know, Mr. Incredible, a.k.a. Bob Parr. (laughs) <laughs> just a delightfully ironic name. Yep. Has a job just in this insurance company. Oh my where, god. I think and it's is... interesting that it's not just some generic office job, which they could have totally done. He is working for a scummy insurance company, which is probably an redundant, but nonetheless, Bob is really still having... Difficulty. The, I mean, not... he's having difficulty like dealing with his boring-ass job, but it's also a matter of... He's not doing well at his job because of how he's constantly trying to help people, which the insurance company doesn't want to do, but... Despite being an insurance company. Yeah, but Bob still has that drive to help people, and he's doing things like telling this old lady a a bunch of loopholes and extra steps she can take to get her insurance payout or whatever. Yeah, and something I want to call attention to is that... Mr. Incredible doesn't really have, I guess, very many opportunities in this movie. Maybe, like, three to show, like, his smarts. Like, that super brains is not his superpower. But really, honestly, he can be incredibly intelligent when it comes to, like, finding loopholes and strategizing and stuff like that. He clearly, he's worked at this company for, like, what, three years? And he knows their policies inside and out he could cheat the system like a pro and he does and he does that specifically to help people yeah and specifically like against the wishes of his boss who is this terribly obnoxious little ratty person yeah with this horrible like screechy voice and meanwhile elastigirl is aka helen yep is raising three kids violet dash and jack jack Mm -hmm. who are Fun people. Yeah. Violet was my girl when this movie first came out. Like, honestly, she's still, like, my girl. She's the real MVP. She's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, But, I mean, they're cool characters, and they establish that um, they all use their powers at home and all that. Yeah. So it's not like they have to hide them completely, but they Well, I mean, Violet's superpower, one of them is literally hiding, so. In a sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but they're having, like, fights at the dinner table where they're (laughs) using superpowers and stuff. And it's really grounds that this is a completely normal family on top of the superpowers. Yeah. Or, like, a completely normal family superpowers on top of that. Yeah. Which is interesting, and I 
don't know. It's well done. Yeah. It and the scene in which the they're, very relatable they're all like fighting around the table and then the doorbell rings and they just instantly go silent and then freeze for like a moment. And then so quickly they get back in order. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's really funny. But it also like, I have to say it. It's very easy to like apply queer theory to the situation. Like the closet analogy is very low hanging fruit here. Hmm. And I think a reason why I might have connected with this movie, and particularly with Violet, but, like, with the movie in general, was that, I don't know, like, I felt like I understood that for, I guess, reasons I didn't even quite know at the time. I was, like, what, 11 when the movie came out? Something like that. But, like, I watched it so many times over the years. I had it memorized at one point in middle school. I'm not joking. And, I don't know, I've thought about it a lot since, you know, in the 14 years since the first movie came out. And I don't know, I feel like I may have connected with the, I don't know, the struggle of like having to hide your true self on some level. Because quite honestly, that is life in the closet. That's your daily dose of um, queer theory and queer experience, courtesy of me. I definitely see how that metaphor, I guess, is in there. Yeah. Whether it was something they put there consciously or not. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not, it's a very common trope, so there's a a lot of stuff that is possible to read as queer from, like, that specific angle. Like, Frozen is another example. Like, goodness gracious, Elsa is a prime example of this exact trope. Yeah. Can we also, like, shout out Lucius? Yeah, Frozone is (laughs) the best. Yeah. Samuel L. Jackson is the only voice actor that I remember by name directly <laughs> i remember all of them and i'm a giant nerd for this movie yeah but he is spectacular oh he's so good pretty cool guy oh totally totally pretty cool guy <laughs> oh god why didn't they catch that and so the first movie the actual plot of it picks up as mr incredible is fired from the insurance company and he ends up working for this company represented by a woman named Mirage and he does not tell the family that he has this new job doing superhero work because that is what this job is for which you know kind of also reminds me of I guess closeted gay men in that era secretly you know being gay on their own time without telling their like heteronormative families and whatnot anyway go on and this does eventually become a situation where Helen's is like, oh, what's going on? Is he cheating on me? Which I didn't understand until just a couple years ago. I did not pick up on that subtext. It was not even subtext. But anyway. I mean, yeah, but I was also a very naive 11-year-old. But yeah, so Mr. Incredible is working out. And we get this whole montage of him having this whole new lease on life while he's lifting train cars at the rail yard yeah that was a really cool sequence like him working out at the train yard like that's awesome he is really fat at the beginning of the movie but he gets back into shape pretty quickly yeah yeah he does you know he doesn't like slim up make the pattern baldness go away but yeah he doesn't slim up but he definitely is looking a lot better once he's running around Mm -hmm. on that island than he was when he was first yeah squeezing himself into the suit yeah anyway yeah but it's also like it's easy to sort of, like, get caught up in the jaunty music and stuff like that during that new lease on life scene. But it's also, good lord, you're not telling your wife about this. This is going to blow up in your face. And it does in spectacular fashion. Yeah, but you really see how he has been wanting to get back into superhero yeah. stuff and how I think much happier he is doing it. Yeah, I think it's partly to do with... His ego, because he has that whole, like, little shrine to, like, his own past achievements in the house and all. And especially, like, we'll see in the second movie, too, his ego is giant. Really giant. But it's also, like, it has to do also very fundamentally with, like, authenticity. Like, being his most authentic self, even if it involves more lying. So, it's, it's a mix of the two, absolutely. You know, it's interesting to me that... Mr. Incredible slash Bob has that room in his house full of all of his old superhero stuff and his suit in this big old glass case. And Elastigirl was a superhero too, but she doesn't seem to have that. 
That's interesting. She yeah. has her old suit, which we see later in the mm-hmm. second movie, but she does not have this whole like little man cave full of all of her <laughs> newspaper clippings and posters and all that. Yeah, and it is very much a man cave, good lord. And also, yeah, like, whereas, it's oh, full of markers of, not just, like, you know, good citizen trophies, like keys to the city or whatnot, but, again, specifically newspaper clippings. So those are markers of a time when public opinion was in the favor of superheroes, and public opinion is very much what sunk them in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So it's kind of like, you know, going back to episode two of our very own podcast. Did we talk about this at all, this movie, in conjunction I know with we, that? I know we mentioned it in The Incredibles at some point. I think we mentioned, movie. like, the newsreel at yeah, some point. Yeah, But I'm not sure we this brought up, like, that... This in the headlines. Yeah, that Mr. Two. Incredible, like, specifically collected media representations of positive public opinion of him as, like, an ego booster slash ego band-aid or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and when he when Mirage first calls him to offer him this job, like he sits back and he has this thrilled look on his face, and it's the, the camera does this weird circular focus thing, and the there's sort of ghosts of the headlines and magazine covers and whatnot sort of flash up around him, and it's it's, it's like he's surrounded by a halo of his own past achievements in a way. Yeah, he has had a lot more trouble, I think, letting go of the past. Whereas, oh, 100%. Elastigirl seems to... Bounce back. Absolutely. It's like, she enjoyed hero work, and I think that she certainly wants them to be able to come back. But she seems like she's adjusted much better to her new life than Bob ever did. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Which, I don't know, maybe there's just some degree of... I almost want to say sexism. I don't think it's necessarily that, but putting her in the mother role and having her settle so into that way better yeah. than Bob did, settle into his Yeah, role. I can kind of see that. Especially given what she says at the very beginning of the movie. What is what is that? I'm at the top of my game. I'm right up there with the big boss. Come on, girls. You've been saving the world to the men? I don't think so. Yeah, like, yeah. And uh... I mean, she can't do it anymore, so... I don't know. I'm not well, gonna... No, nobody can do it anymore, not even the men. Absolutely, so. absolutely. Yeah, like, I'm sure that if Bob was still out there doing superhero stuff, that she would not be content to sit at home like that. Oh, absolutely. But I do think that there's... I don't know. It's interesting to consider that sort of thing. And also because Bob isn't really... I mean, I say, like, Elastigirl has settled into her role as a mother, and Bob is not... It's not that he's, like, in any way has issues with being a father as much as it's just everything else that he has to do. That's true. You know, like, cramming into that little car. Oh, God, a tiny tiny office, Dealing with his crappy boss. Yep. Tiny office, tiny boss, tiny car. Capitalism. All kinds of tiny problems. No, capitalism's a big problem. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It feels like their interactions as parents with their kids is very much rooted in stereotypes. Or not necessarily stereotypes even, but just like the way that Elastigirl is trying to get the kids under control and Bob is like only halfway paying attention. Mm-hmm. And then when Dash is all like, yeah, they didn't even catch me on camera. I was putting an attack on the kid's desk and he's like, whoa, how fast were you going? But oh also, God, yeah. that's Bob, bad. Such don't a bad do influence. that. He doesn't even do that. Man, yeah. I don't know. It feels like very much like this sort of family dynamic you see in any other movie, which is interesting. Yeah. But also... But also, I would argue that's kind of subverted in a way by the way that Bob ultimately can't solve this movie's problems alone. Absolutely. He needs to work with his family. He needs to be on a team rather than, you know, being all huffy before, like, oh, I work alone, yada, da, da, da. So I would argue it kind of subverts subverts it in that way. Yeah, possibly. So speaking of that, we should circle around to the actual, like, main plot and villain. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Syndrome. Yeah, so Bob fights a giant robot on the island and all that. And he actually, this is another moment when he gets to be really incredibly smart and strategic and all that. He figures out how to beat the first killer robot pretty quickly, honestly. That fight can't last more than, like, five minutes. And... He figures out a pretty ingenious solution, honestly. That he gets beat up pretty bad, but he 
Yeah, he is not just dumb muscle. Oh my god, he can be really, really smart. And he only gets a few chances to showcase that, again, but when he does, like, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and at a certain point when Bob's back on the island, Syndrome reveals himself as the mysterious and super yeah, rich Yeah, when Bob is fighting the second new and improved Omnidroid. Yeah, and this is where he gets his whole revelation of his motives and everything. Yeah, which is really interesting. Can we talk about like that one tweet about Sindar from the other day? Yeah. Because I feel yeah. like we should mention that, because it was really good. I saw a tweet that basically said that Syndrome is sort of representative, maybe not deliberately, but of toxic fandom, basically. Yeah. Which I've been seeing a lot of on the internet lately. We all have. And... Yeah, basically yeah, I think like his sense totally, of entitlement and ownership. It totally applies here, you know, because yeah. Syndrome was reveals himself to have been the little kid, which we saw in the prequel of the movie. We didn't really mention him, but mm-hmm. just some kid with jet boots and inventions who really wants to hang up Mr. Incredible. Yeah, be like Robin to his Batman or whatever. And like really oversteps a lot of personal boundaries by poking his nose into Mr. Incredible's business and like... Waiting for the dude in his own car. Like, that's weird. That's kind of creepy. That is stalkerish behavior, honestly. You are not affiliated with me. I wonder what happened to Syndrome's mom. Mr. Incredible told the policeman who took, you know, tiny baby Syndrome away to, you know, make sure his mom knows what he's been doing. Whatever (laughs) happened to her? Pixar, where's my animated short about her? Huh. But, yeah, so, I mean, at the time... You totally feel bad for the kid because, I mean, he's just a kid who probably doesn't really know any better. And, well, he's definitely overstepping boundaries. Mr. Incredible is also pretty harsh on him. Or See, I not, don't think he's unjustifiably harsh yeah, at all. I, I think, think he's justifiably harsh, but he is still kind of harsh. Again, justifiably Or just, so, like, brushing the, him off with the cold shoulder. It's The kid clearly wasn't taking just a regular no for an answer. I think yeah, Mr. Incredible yeah. needed to be firm with him. He there totally, needed to be he totally, consequences. He totally did. And Mr. Incredible did it, try to save the kid's life after Bomb Voyage like clipped a bomb onto his cape. Yeah, I don't think Mr. Incredible did anything wrong. No, really. I really don't think he did. But I do think that you are going to get a little bit sympathetic for the kid at the time. I mean, I'm not, but that's me. Yeah. Well, Again, it's like whatever. white fanboy entitlement. I can't feel any sympathy for that. Yeah, and it's like Syndrome himself is all ranty about... He basically feels like he deserves to have been Mr. Incredible's sidekick. And that the fact that Mr. Incredible himself had no interest in what this kid wanted and did not feel any need to... Respect him? Not even respect him, but to go along with what the kid wanted. Yeah. Is basically the thing that kind of seems to send Syndrome down this spiral of plotting his various revenge against if Mr. Incredible. If I can't Incredible. be your sidekick, I'll be your nemesis. Yeah, which expands to the rest of the superhero world, basically. Can you imagine becoming a literal supervillain because your white boy ego got hurt when you were, like, 12? Dear God. That yeah. kid needs help. That kid needs, like, major... Th- well, doesn't need therapy anymore. It got shredded by a jet wing. Yeah. But it does kind of make me think of the very specific and particular brand of fans who get very vocal on the internet who are like, I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking of like Star Wars. I knew you were thinking about that. Who were all like bitter over The Last Jedi and then tried to boycott Solo and went all. Wait, they tried to boycott Solo? It's literally about their white boy fave. That makes no sense. You're right, it doesn't. Oh, God. So, though, yeah. And so they used to like this thing obsessively and then felt that they... Were not being personally catered to by it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, they felt a sense of ownership or authority over the thing. Yeah, exactly. And then when that thing decided, like, okay, we aren't just going to do what you want... Their reaction was, screw you, I hope you fail, and I'm going to actively Like, harangue to... you on social media? Like, try to... all those awful fans harassing Kelly Marie Tran? But I'm thinking, like, specifically trying to actively then make you fail. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, like, this particular subset of 
toxic Star Wars fan wanted Star Wars to fail, and Syndrome wanted Mr. Incredible and superheroes to fail. Yeah, you're totally right. And to be clear, this is very clearly sort of a after-the-fact reinterpretation of the movie, because 2004 was way before any of this sort of thing was before Gamergate, which I kind of think sort of kicked off this cesspool of crappy attitudes and combined it with the sort of oh, platforming absolutely. power of social media like that was that was the beginning yeah, of the end yeah. honestly but that's that is a whole other discussion and there's definitely some superhero relevant stuff to talk about there but that's also not I think we've talked enough about yeah, that. We've yeah. pretty much covered we can what move, needed to be covered. We can move along from that particular unpleasant interpretation yeah. of everything. Yeah. But also, while we're on the subject of Syndrome, can we talk about how truly terrible some of his tech is? I.e. that scanner thing that clearly does not see past solid objects, like Gazer Beam's skeleton, which Mr. Incredible is able to just hide behind to trick the scanner. Syndrome, you idiot. You are just a giant idiot. I mean, anybody with that haircut who thinks that haircut would look good would be, like, a massive moron. But I digress. Seriously, what is with his hair? So then once (laughs) he escapes from Syndrome, Mm -hmm. after Syndrome gets his, You sly dog, you caught me monologuing. (laughs) Yeah, very genre savvy. Such a great line. There was a bit before when uh, Frozone and Mr. Incredible were hanging out in the car listening to the police scanner where Frozone's recounting some story of... Baron von Ruthless. That's the only other real mention of a supervillain that we get, isn't it? Yeah, and he has, and they mentioned, he mentions Baron von Ruthless having some death ray or something, which suggests a super scientist who probably doesn't have direct powers. But that's that's true. That's a whole true. other thing. But he's the only other one. Yeah, but he just but Frozone is just talking about how Baron von Ruthless was monologuing relentlessly, and that was yeah. He's like the guy had me on a platter, and he won't shut up. And then we get a little, just a little call back again to the monologuing thing with Syndrome there, which is funny. Yeah. And, yeah, Mr. Incredible does escape and starts poking Dude, around this yeah. island. And this is a really cool... Oh my god, it's so cool. Like, stealth break-in section. Yeah, he's, on. again, he's not just dumb muscly. He doesn't just crash through things. He can be stealthy, too. Yeah. I love this, I love the scene where he's, like, on that little monorail serval pod thing. And then he sees the security gate up ahead and just tears it off and the little sparking base of it rolls up and then the two guards are like, what? And the and he throws, he just them. yeets the entire thing at them. And it's great. And he smashes them and the gate. So, you know, three birds, one stone. Three birds, one very large monorail pod. Yeah, it's a fun little sequence and you really see how the movie is stylized with yeah, that section. Yeah. It's interesting because it feels inspired by old 70s type comics with... Yeah, I'll tell like, you where cra- I have not really read That's the thing. That's the yeah. thing. It feels inspired by that with like the extravagant secret bases and the hordes of minions who get no development whatsoever. Oh yeah, all those like masked soldiers. Yeah, but at the same time, it feels like it also has its own very distinctive style. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting thing Pixar did with this, where they could have just made a very directly based on comic books aesthetic the whole movie but they really did not do that and very much made it their own Hmm. setting and their own world and aesthetic outside of the sort of superhero pastiche they could have done yeah which i think speaks to pixar's particular thoroughness and everything because yeah i don't think pixar would have been satisfied to just make something that was more directly based on stuff that already yeah. existed. I'd be curious to know, I, I know nothing about spy movies in general, especially spy movies of that era. So, I don't know, maybe somebody who's watched way more James Bond movies than me, who has, I have, watched, who I has have watched Zero. Seen, I have seen all the James Bond movies. Oh, seriously? Almost all of them. How did I not know this about you? Um, and actually, yeah, there are huge James Bond influences in The Incredibles. Like, on the, no, on the way to the movie... We were, we kept mixing up, or Will kept mixing up the themes from The Incredibles and Mission Impossible. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine is another thing. <laughs> so clearly that's a mashup somebody needs to make. But Yeah, but it's like... Yeah, the, that's, that's what got me thinking about it. Yeah, but the big old supervillain secret base and the hordes of minions and the big old rocket in the middle of the base is very... A rocket, even? 
Yeah, there are a couple of big supervillain bases of James Bond that involve rockets or missiles. Oh, interesting. And these were, were these like Cold War era movies? This was like, I don't know, I'm Moonraker and The Spy Who Loved Me are both examples of extravagant bases. Moonraker has a rocket in it. Mm-hmm. There's even one or two Sean Connery ones that involved, I think, big missile silos. Yeah, well, if they were in 60s, 70s, or even 80s, that would have made sense as like a Cold War. Yeah, they thing. were in that period. None of these were later than the early 80s, I would say. But I don't know exactly which ones happened when. Oh, Christ. I just had a thought. Technically, The Incredibles is also set during the Cold War, but would the Cold War have happened as it did in that era? That's a whole nother. And especially with what happens in the second movie with, like, the crap ton of superheroes and ambassadors from other countries. Like, is the Cold War not even, like, happening in this world for the geopolitical landscape to be, like, that conducive to a big superhero confab? That would be interesting to explore because the yeah yeah, because I don't know if Pixar would want to date any Incredibles movies that significantly based by basing things on real world events. But I mean, fair. I don't know. That would be interesting to explore, read read about, or something. Yeah, I have a lot of questions about the way politics work in the Incredibles movies, but I feel like that'll be better addressed when we talk about the second movie. So anyway, super, well, super Mr. Incredibles, Mr. Incredible's poking around, and he discovers the overall plot that is going on here, in that it seems to basically just be a cycle of mirage slash syndromes, big weird company thing, keeps hiring superheroes, bringing them to the island. Hitting the su- droid against them? Yeah. It's just this massive cycle of a superhero getting killed by the droids until one of them gets lucky and kills beyond the droid. And then there's the next iteration of the Omnidroid that kills them and a bunch of other superheroes. Like a bunch. It is a really dark sequence when he's in this room figuring this out. It is, this is all his friends being killed that we're talking about. His friends who he probably for the most part hasn't seen in 15 years. Yeah. It's weird, you know? This is a very like family friendly and family oriented movie, but it is surprisingly dark. Pixar yeah, like, does... we're calling it family-friendly Watchmen for a reason. Yeah. Pixar does not pull punches on that. I mean, this is the same studio that makes Up, so we already know they don't pull punches. Although Up was after. It only hit me, like, this time around. What a horrifying sequence that is. Yeah. I want to see, like, over 20 superheroes were killed by this. And, like, they finally... Man, 20 at least. Yeah. Mr. Incredible destroyed the ninth iteration of the Omnidroid, and each of them had got to have, like, killed, like, three or four superheroes each. Something like that. We would have to go back through and, like, count exactly. There are some bits where he's, like, just flashing on his face and stuff, so it's not... That's... Oh, that's true. ...super evident exactly how many there are, but there's a lot. It's... We could probably tell from, like, the flashing light patterns. But anyway. But, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, and... He gets captured shortly thereafter. By these weird blob gun things that are honestly kind of horrifying. Like, I'm not very claustrophobic, but those things make me claustrophobic. Yeah, also something that could actually take down someone who's super strong, which is interesting. Yeah, that is a genuinely good invention. I would, at least it seems like from the way they work. And at about that point, uh, Elastigirl is coming to the rescue well, no, and the, Mr. Incredible gets after. discovered because um, she uses the homing device that Edna gives her and uses it to track the homing de- device in Mr. Incredible's suit. Oh, and yeah, And the signal yeah. goes off and alerts security that... So let's talk about like what Elastigirl is up to during this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, she's following along the with Mr. Incredible and then... Well, she first discovers Mirage's hair on the suit, which is a very stereotypical, like, oh, is he cheating on me thing? But yeah. she also goes to Edna when she finds the super suit has been stitched up recently. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Incredible's first super suit was damaged by the Omnidroid. And, and Edna does this whole Oh my god, scene. we didn't even talk about the scene where Mr. Incredible goes to Edna. Oh my god. So everything, good. I can quote so much of that. Everything Edna Moe does is amazing. She's and iconic. Also, and also, last me watching it, every single... Basically every line of hers you just said at the same time. <laughs> I'm see, I I like I said I had this movie memorized once upon a ten years ago, more than ten years ago. God, I'm old. Especially the bit about supermodels. I definitely just like said the whole thing aloud. 
Yeah. No, it was good. It was good. Edna is real good. The no capes bit. Classic. But also... Instantly, like, iconic. But also really dark at the same time, too. Yeah. Like, can we talk about Stratagale? I went through the special features on the DVD back in the day. Stratagale was a high school student with the power of flight. So, like, basically this teenage girl went and got killed by getting herself sucked into a jet turbine because of her cape. That is some dark stuff. And I, I read this Tumblr post once that... Basically, it was like, imagine how much Edna blames herself for Stratagale's death. Oh, imagine man. her going to that funeral and if then Edna going back designed... home and tearing up every single one of her designs and muttering just no capes, no capes, no capes. We don't Step know. Step four, feel your heartbreak. We don't know necessarily that Edna designed her suit because there are other designers. Oh, that's true. But that's only really elaborated on in the first movie. No, in the second movie. Sorry, my brain went for a second. Yeah, but it's never made explicit whether she designed those suits or not. Or if yeah. she just saw them and just... Yeah, but it's still it. heartbreaking. You know, I actually prefer yeah. to think that somebody like Alexander... What was his name from the second movie? Alexander Gabachi? Yeah. Designed Stratagale's suit. That's better than thinking Edna had to go through all that mental torment. Oh my god. I love Edna. I should also mention, I've seen pictures of somebody cosplaying Edna at some con somewhere and gesturing angrily to all the people in cosplay who had capes. It's the best. Yeah. So, the last so, yeah. girl also goes to Edna and... When she realizes that only one person would have actually realistically fixed Mr. Incredible Suit. Yeah. And she gets this... Edna gives her this presentation on the suits that she's made for her, her entire, entire family. family. Oh my god. And Helen is just like, what is going on? And then she's like, wait, you didn't know Mr. Incredible Suit here work again? I thought he told you. Oh, man. Edna Mode. Textile engineer and relationship counselor. Yeah. She's amazing. And then she sends... She does give Elastigirl the little tracker thing that indicates where Mr. Incredible is, which she uses to track him down. And, and inadvertently get him captured. Yes. Which is great. Yes. And she flies over in a rescue jet, which Dash and Violet also end up on. Yeah. And she flies the jet herself, which is phenomenal. Apparently, she calls her old acquaintance Snug to get a hold of the plane. And originally they were going to have Snug fly the plane and go down with it and like, you know, die and stuff. But they actually decided to have her fly the plane. So yeah, it's a bit of interesting, a... if possibly apocryphal film trivia. Yeah, that's a cool bit. Yeah, especially because like the, girl clearly jet, the lingo is so accurate. And the plane gets blown up and the three of them are presumed escape. dead, but actually it survived. Yeah, and Mr. Incredible, they play like the radio conversation because Syndrome is in the place where Mr. Incredible is held captive and everything. Mm -hmm. And so like he makes Mr. Incredible think that they're dead. and He thinks they're dead too. Really sad. I know. And he like threatens to kill. He almost makes him into Batman right there. My God. He threatens to. Or like no, like the Punisher, even worse. He threatens to kill Mirage right there. And he doesn't, but Mr. But Syndrome was ready to just. I have no doubt it. that if Mirage hadn't like pushed Syndrome out of the way, and if Mr. Incredible had gotten a hold of Syndrome, Syndrome would probably be dead. Like I'm pretty sure Mr. Incredible would have gone there. I don't think he would. You know, at that point, like Mirage was also just, as far as he knew, totally complicit in it. Eh, maybe. You know, he doesn't do it because she's innocent. He does it because he's just not going to straight up murder someone. Well, he almost strangles her later. Maybe just yeah, to like get the information he needs out of her. But I don't know. He doesn't really strangle her to get information. He's just like angry and dark and broody and punishery. Yeah. But And meanwhile, Elastigirl and Dash yeah. and Violet, their whole family dynamic is cool and would be interesting <laughs> to explore like yeah. how they want to use their powers and... I mean, we kind of do explore that a little bit, but not so yeah. much with the dynamics between... No, I mean, like, it'll be cool to, like, talk about on the podcast. Maybe. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're cool. And, okay, a lot of... Elastigirl turns into a boat and Dash just gets super speed kicking as the motor, which is... And Violet's just sitting there like, what the hell is my life? No, but can I actually circle back to the whole family dynamics thing for a second? I want to call attention to that moment in the plane when... Elastigirl orders Violet to put the force field around the plane. And Violet was, not, I guess, has not been nearly as rebellious as Dash in this 
form because her immediate response is, but you said we weren't supposed to use our powers. Like, she is really hesitant to disobey those rules. She's afraid to, I think. So, like, her, yeah. her hesitance, that speaks volumes about their family dynamic to me. Like, Dash is, you know, the difficult child. And Violet is a little more, I don't want to say placid, but that's the only word occurring to me at the moment. A little less willing to rock the boat. And maybe to a degree that has to do with, you I think know, her reluctance to use her powers there. I think that reluctance to use her powers there is probably, like, in large part, just a panicky reaction because of the situation as well. I mean, yeah, that's fair. So they get to the island. They have this whole thing where, like, Elastigirl has to have this, like, very serious talk with Dash and Violet about how dangerous these people are, which mm-hmm. was interesting. Yeah. And, and then Violet tries to apologize to Helen after Helen goes to leave to find Bob. And Helen does something that I think is really rare in a lot of parent-child relationships in media. She actually genuinely apologizes to Violet. Yeah. And acknowledges her own... Wrongdoing seems a bit of a strong word, but... Mistakes? She, mistakes, yeah. That's that's milder. That feels more appropriate to the situation. So, like, she acknowledges her own, like, fallibility in that moment, which is really phenomenal. Yeah. And then she yeah. also... What she then says is not really... It doesn't really constitute defending herself, in a sense. Like, yes, she says that times are different and things are going to have to change, but it's all in the service of validating Violet and building up her confidence to make her feel like she can rise to the occasion, which is honestly just wonderful and so refreshing to see. Now, that is a healthy family relationship right there. And then Violet has that really, like, formative moment that was formative for me, too, when Helen, like, sort of tucks the hair out of her face and then leaves, and Violet, like, stares after her and then stares down at the mask and then very slowly puts it on. There's that moment in the music where it's, I guess, I think it's like a French horn note. And it's, it's this like extended note that's the end of the song. And she just stands up a little bit straighter now that she has the mask on. And I'm getting chills just recounting it, honestly. And from that point forward, she has the hairband in as well. and Yeah. Pulling the her... one thing they managed to rescue from that bag last girl took along before it gets incinerated by the rocket exhaust. Pulling her hair out of her face a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, Elastigirl gets... Another a, cool, like, stealth yeah. sequence. She she also breaks into the facility, and she does so significantly more subtly than Bob does. Yeah, definitely. And Although I gotta wonder, there's that one other thing that nearly flattens her, the little pod or whatnot. I gotta wonder what calls. the heck those people thought they saw. <laughs> yeah, were, were they, like, just... Putting it on autopilot and sitting in the so and like playing kind of freaking Parcheesi or something. Yeah, like those things can be automated and it's just kind of a tunnel. I don't know if there's going to be any reason to be looking out of them. That's true. That's true. She gets to like flatten to her minimum thickness almost, I feel like. And Which, as I know, minimum thickness, I believe, is like one millimeter. Again, sp- special features from the DVD. I think I remember that. And then there's that bit where she gets stuck in the doors. Oh my god, that is... Such clever storytelling, honestly. That is so clever. It is funny. Oh my god, so funny. Like, she's stuck in, like, three doors at once. And, and it's she's, like, like, kicking a dude on one side and pickpocketing a dude on the other side. It was great. Yeah. The whole thing is just really, really great. And, yeah, she reunites with Bob. There's a whole extended sequence of everybody running around and... We finally see Dash and Violet getting to really use their oh powers against yeah. the random dudes. Yeah, they get cornered by the um, nameless soldier dudes, and yeah, uh, Dash runs like Dash runs across water. Violet oh my god, that's so cool! Fields. That whole sequence with Dash running is so incredibly cool. But yeah, yeah. no, and Violet and doesn't really, cool. really get like a fight sequence so much as like a mini stealth sequence, which isn't quite as cool visually speaking. She, she, does, gets, she gets she a cool fight off, scene in the second movie. She shows oh off God. her force skills a lot, which is fun. Well, yeah, but not until Dash is in imminent danger. And she just, like, shrieks and jumps out and boom, force field. And it's awesome. And then they have the hamster wheel force field thing. Which oh, is my fun. God. Yeah, side note, like, what is the deal with Viola just, like, hanging in midair when her force fields are active? How does that work exactly? I would dearly love to know. 
I suppose it just makes it easier for them to have Vi and Dash both travel in the force field without Vi having to like keep up with Dash running wise. Yeah, and they, uh, then eventually they literally run Bob the hamster Helen's wheel into Bob and Helen. And all the family's reunited, and they yep, and they have a little confrontation with Syndrome. Well, who, confrontation. Syndrome swoops in as they're fighting soldiers and freezes them with his zero point energy. Which what did you say that was a reference to? I don't know if it's a reference to it, but zero. It actually might be null point energy or something in Marvel Comics as well, which has a similar effect of just freezing holding things in stasis, basically. Okay. But yeah, he captures all four of them. They get this whole motive rant of how he's going to send the thing in and send the Yamad right into the city. Have this Throw some screaming people. Yeah, post the superhero, take him down. And this is interesting because I remembered from before that he's planning on selling all of his stuff to everybody so that basically everybody's super and when everybody's, everyone's super, nobody is. But he also mentions... Before he does that, he's just going to be a superhero for a while. Yeah. Or at least, like, pretend to be one. Yeah. And it's, like, not until he's ready to, like, quit or retire that he would start selling those things. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting and another little twist on how obnoxious and selfish he is. Hmm. You know, he wants to be the superhero. He wants to be in control of it. And then when he can't anymore, he's going to... Make sure no one other person can yeah. take up the mantle. I mean, he's basically going to destroy the whole concept of it by giving his tech to everybody. God, that's right. You know, so he takes control as long as he can and then just burns it all down when he's done. Sound like anybody we know? Oh, I don't want to think about that. Anyway, yeah, let's not think about that. And yeah, no, Bob has his, like, you know, come to Jesus moment. Yeah, Bob and Helen are all, oh, no. But oh, meanwhile, no, Violet is, Violet is being smart. One. Yeah, seriously. I wonder what happened if Dash, like, just shook really fast or something. But <laughs> Violet is when he gets Shake out. Shake waited his way out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that would have been hilarious. Yeah, and they all get out while Syndrome is running off to the city. Yeah, they managed to nab the spare rocket. And Which, like, I suppose it makes sense that Syndrome has a spare rocket around, but, like... He probably has a bunch of rockets. Okay, that's true. Why he's would you he's a, supposed to be rich, after Why would you all, have right? a giant island supervillain base and only have one rocket? Okay, that's fair. That makes sense. And they have this hilarious bit where they have Elastigirl suspending an RV oh, in God. the rocket thing. I felt so bad for her in that sequence. That's gotta hurt. She was lifting a car. Like, like, man, you want to talk about Mr. Incredible being sure. the one who has Mr. super Incredible strength? Has super Good strength. God. She clearly is definitely more strong than your average bearer there. No kidding. No kidding. It's it's great, but also like, ouch. And yeah. the bit where he calls out the RV window, how you doing, honey? And she just screeches at him. She's taking no crap. There's also just yeah. a funny, like... Family road trip in a rocket oh sort of thing. With an RV that Dash you stole like, from a supervillain. Dash is like, are we there yet? Oh my god. And then, and then the bit that's just like a really sophisticated car chase sequence, but also more family road trip goodness, like arguing over which exit to take. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh my god, that was hilarious. They'll take us downtown. That's and Alaska was like, don't take seven. And he just, like, swerved like a madman. And then has the nerve to try to blame her. Like, great, we missed it. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Just freaking Google Map it, you guys. Come on. This is way before Google Maps was I know. I'm being facetious. Um, but really, and though, honestly, in a world with tech-like syndromes, like, surely some form of Google Map exists. Well, yeah, Mr. Incredible had it in his car. Exactly! Why didn't the random supervillain RV... Supervillain RV at that. Why didn't that have GPS installed? Because they're on an island that they don't want on satellites. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That makes sense. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway, Syndrome gets his ass kicked by the robot, which destroys or... It doesn't destroy, but it knocks away the remote. Yeah. And... The Incredibles and Frozone spend the next few minutes playing a game of Grab-Away. And Frozone has... Frozen and Honey have the best scene. Oh my god. I don't know how much there even is to dissect about that, but it's iconic. I think every person who is alive to see that movie, who has ever seen that movie, can quote that scene, that entire scene. I know I certainly did. 
I am this close to doing it, but we are not going to do that on podcast no, right now. No, no, no. That'd be too embarrassing. So, um, but yeah, no, it was real good. And also, can we talk about how slick Frozone's setup is for his like secret yeah, super Yeah, this was something that occurred to me as stuff. we were talking about it before, how Mr. Incredible had that room and Elastigirl had nothing. So Mr. Incredible has this like old trophy room full of newspaper, newspaper clippings and his old suit in a case. Elastigirl doesn't seem to have anything except maybe her old suit tucked away in a closet somewhere. Mm-hmm. Frozone has this automated flipping suit and control panels readouts, things, and a suit that's just ready to freaking go at the drop of a hat. Yeah, you know, it makes me think that Frozone has lived in that apartment for a very long time. I guess so. he was able to just, like, retreat quietly into it, and he certainly hasn't caused as much trouble as Bob has. And it makes me think that Bob and the Paras only relocated to Metroville, where Frozone lives, only about three years ago. So, you know, it's kind of nice to think about them arriving in the city and meeting up with Frozone and them growing out and stuff like that. Like, golly, I missed you, stuff like that. I don't know. That's kind of a nice image. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And Helen is like, finally, somebody else gets it. Yeah. So there's a whole thing. They have a whole fight. Side note, I want Helen and Honey on a coffee date slash bitching session. I need that. That would be cool. That would be so cute. That would be great. I would love that. I want to write that fanfic. All of, the, all of this stuff is great. Yes. And this whole fight scene is delightful. Mostly because of, like, the freaking remote control bit. Oh my god, them fighting like over just... the remote. So relatable. Every scene in this movie that is just the most stereotypical, like, family argument or discussion or whatever thing. But also, like, whoever wrote this, like, rapper clearly, like knows family dynamics like that is it that is it's all like the most cliche stuff but they pull it off so perfectly yeah and then mr incredible also does get that third like smart moment like the he realizes the only thing that's strong enough to penetrate the omnidroid is itself yeah so he like aims the claw at it like that's the big you know epiphany moment or whatnot yeah it's a cool fight yeah It's a a very cool fight sequence. Can we talk about how cool it is that Elastigirl fires the manhole cover at the Omnidroid's gun? That was pretty awesome. They all get pretty good scenes. Like freaking slingshots it or like frisbees it or whatnot. It is so cool. Yeah. Frozen putting the ice beneath the Omnidroid like that doesn't have the cloth. That was also genius. Mm -hmm. They all get some good bits. Oh, definitely. Oh, and Mr. Carmel throwing the remote to Dash. Like, you know, they had Go long. Yeah, and that new Lease on Life montage earlier, like, they were playing catch. And, I don't know, it was just a really lovely callback to that scene. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Yeah. Mr. Incredible shoots the heart out of the robot. It collapses into the lake and explodes. Yep. And then they're riding back. They have this little talk with Dicker, who, by the way, I did not pick up until the last time I watched it that whatever agency Mr. Dicker worked for had like straight up memory erasing things like some men in black crap yeah and that's only like mentioned offhand in that movie but then it becomes a plot point in the second which was interesting yeah yeah and can we talk about okay so the first few times i saw that movie i thought rick dicker looked like george w bush i still kind of think he does but with with the men in black connection i'm also inclined to think he looks like tommy lee jones you're Which right. is probably on purpose. You're right. He does look like Tommy Lee Jones. I can't <laughs> believe I didn't notice that. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Really, I guess the ending of it is with... Syndrome being mad that they're stealing his thunder. Meh, 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 meh. Yeah, he's like, you took away my future. I'm returning a favor. Like, God, get a job. Or he just like, retire to... on your inventions and like go back to that island and be miserable forever. Dude, yeah. seriously. He tries to kidnap Jack-Jack. Which doesn't really work out for because him. Because Jack-Jack has started to manifest his own superpowers. Lots and lots of powers. Oh we'll my god, ab- so many. And talk about think, a Mary Sue, good lord. We'll talk about this, I think, in the second movie because there are yeah. some interesting things about that there. Mm-hmm. And it also, it also demonstrates that Syndrome kidnapping Jack-Jack would, no matter what happened, not have gone well for him at all. No, oh my god. Even if he'd been totally successful, that would have been a problem. Seriously. Him. Yeah. No kidding. Regular babies are difficult enough. Like, imagine dealing with a baby that turns into a literal demon. Yeah. Or a baby that literally sets itself and its surroundings on fire. Like, or holy crap. Or a baby that becomes multiple babies. 
That doesn't really appear till the sequel, does it? I mean, yeah, but it still appears. Yeah, like, good lord. I do not envy Bob and Helen having to deal with that. Or just even Bob alone, as we see in the second movie. Good grief. Yeah, and they do rescue the... Because um, Helen has a great idea that Bob can throw her up to Jack-Jack and she could do the parachute thing. The parachute thing is really cool, by the way. She does the parachute thing a lot. Yeah, even in the second movie a couple times she does it to yeah. like slow the train down and stuff. It's, it's useful, though. It's yeah. useful. Last Girl's powers are honestly feel like they're a lot more useful versatile than Bob's are. Oh, totally. Which I think 100%. we totally see some of in the sequel as well. Yeah, and Bob's skill set, which I think must include some sort of like military stealth, whatnot, is more versatile than his actual power. Yeah, and probably. so Elastigirl has the double advantage of presumably that same sort of training. Like, and arguably there's more canonical evidence for that because of the whole thing with Snug and a really versatile power in and of itself. So she is it. Yep. And Syndrome gets, surprise, surprise, a second jet turbine. And then the remnants of the falling jet like destroys their house, their, you know, perfect model of suburbia, whatever, shattering the illusion that, that they can be anything other than a normal family. And Violet has shielded them all with a force field. And oh my god, we didn't talk about the tricycle kid. He's who great. Accidentally sees Mr. Incredible like use his super strength power to lift his car above his head and just like bubblegum pop moment. And then he comes back at the very end of the movie and was like, that was totally wicked! But there's also the second time he shows up where he's like, Oh yeah. Bob gets up his car all yeah, frustrated. Time like, three, yeah. What are you what are you waiting for? And he's like, I, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. So yep. yeah, that about covers the movie. This is gonna have to be part one of two. There was just too much to talk about yeah. in this movie. I think we decided alone. on that a little while back. Yeah, yeah, but we're just like making, so, making it obvious for yeah. you guys. I mean I think like a few conclusions. Yeah. I think The Incredibles does an amazing job of being a movie about a family and being a movie about superheroes without really having to compromise on either one, I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, it doesn't feel like it's, oh, it's a fam- it's a regular family comedy, but they're superheroes, or they're superheroes, but also they're a family you have to deal with. It does both things, and it does them both really well. Yeah, it's not tearing anything down for the sake of tearing it down, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's Like, nobody kind of, gets fridged. It's kind of a pastiche of superheroes, but I wouldn't say it's a parody it really uses genre savvy without being cynical about it yeah it's i would i also wouldn't say it's really it's metatextual in a few places similar yeah like the the notebooks thing very i think it's much more sincere slash earnest with itself than a even a movie like megamind which is megamind was still pretty earnest and all that we talked about that in the metatextuality episode a little while back yeah i do think the tick comes from a similar place of like really earnestly loving the superhero genre, but I mean, absolutely. And Mega Mind loves the genre too, clearly. Yeah. But The Incredibles is different in that I don't know, it's doing a little bit of winking at the genre and being like, haha, isn't this silly? Yeah. But it's not really doing that as a central thing of the movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's great characters. Gorgeous animation for the time, which I know yeah, like, there are certain things that look like it's this was clearly like a mid 2000s thing. People's but ears, Violet's ears, especially. Yeah, you that, know, that like still bugs me. The hair, the hair and water and explosions and everything are, are really nicely, uh, yeah, they hold up super well. I mean, the environments are stylized, but they look really good. The ending yeah. credits are spectacularly done. Oh my god, I love the end credits, so on and so forth. The score is amazing. Michael Giacchino is the real MVP, best James Bond music I've ever heard. Honestly, yes, though. It yep. is such a good score. It is a great movie. And I think we mentioned the James Bond inspiration. I think the fact that it draws from a lot of different sources rather than just taking a bunch of superhero things and parodying them or anything I mean, really makes it a strong movie overall. You know, I would almost disagree with you there. I think it pulls from multiple sources, but it doesn't spread itself too thin by drawing from like a bunch of things. I would say his main three influences are, you know, the Pixar ethos of what if blank had feelings and like this really deep focus on interpersonal familial relationships. Like that is Pixar's brand. And then, you know, superhero tropes and spy movie tropes. Like those are the three main, you know, ingredients. Yeah, I guess so. And And it does all of it really well. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't spread itself too thin by trying to make fun of everything. That's or true. or draw true. on everything. It doesn't try to be everything. 
Yeah. It does a few things. Incredibly well. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And yeah, great movie. If you haven't seen it or if you've been for the last 14 years, welcome back to Civilization. Yeah. From the coma you must have been in. Yeah. Hope you get well soon. Hope the hospital bills don't kill you. Yeah. Um, you've got a lot to catch up on, but thanks for listening to our podcast. You know. <laughs> Yelling about superheroes, number four podcast with the recently thought out of a coma. Anyway, I anyway, think we better wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, this has been, I guess, part one of our discussion of the Incredibles movie series. Yep. Then next week will be part two. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye. See you next time. That's it for this episode of Yelling About Superheroes. For more yelling, you can follow us on Twitter at yellinabtsupers. Or check out our website at anchor.fm slash yelling-about-superheroes. You can also visit Whitney's blog at whitneythompson.wordpress.com, where we post our reading lists for each episode. We're now on iTunes, which is exciting, so if you're an iTunes listener, don't forget to subscribe there, and please rate the show and leave us a review. It'll help us in store rankings, and we always love feedback. We're also on Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Our theme music was composed by Rodrigo Vicente. You can listen to more of his work at hooksounds.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.